Good morning, CBF. Our scripture reading today comes from Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Please follow along with me as I read. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he has brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning, church. Thank you, Emily, for reading. Oh, it's my privilege to be here this morning. I count it as a huge privilege to be able to share the word with you. And uh, I want to do something a little bit different because I'm usually not here very often. So I just want to say in this season of life as we transition from the high school into our new home, I just want to remind you once again, and I try to remind myself that it's not about where we are. It's a, where we, who we are with. And so I hope that this season that we can celebrate Christmas together, that we will be reminded of those, those truths that we try to share with you from here every Sunday and you share with yourselves and with your families throughout the week. I also want to do something a little bit different in the sense I want to, I want to say thank you to some individuals. I'm not going to call names, but if you serve in any area of our nursery ministries or children's or up to students from 0 to 18, would you please stand? Just stand up. I see some of you. Thank you. We are, we're honored here at CBF to have you as part of our ministry. We count it as a blessing to, to have you serving alongside of us. And um, the other thing I want to share with you is that our paramedics, they just came in. They took Al George to the hospital. He's got a little bit of high blood pressure going on right now. So... I'm going to take the time as we open our service. Now I'm just going to pray for him, and I would ask you to do the same. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the privilege once again to come together as a church, to be able to open your word freely. We don't know how long that will be and how much time we still have to have the freedom to be able to do those things, but I pray, Father, that we would not take that privilege for granted. Father, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts, prepare our hearts for your word, 
And Father, I pray that you would remove me from here, that your word would speak to us, that we would learn and that we would meditate on your truth. And Father, may we be convicted that your truth is what we need. And Father, right now we pray for L. George. Thank you so much for the paramedics and firefighters and everybody who gives their life and time to be able to serve the community and their people. And Father, I just thank you and I pray for him that nothing would be too bad, that a little bit of rest wouldn't help. But Father, just, just stay with him. Just give the doctors wisdom. And we thank you once again for this time in Jesus' name. Someone has said that uh, words possess power and that promises are hard to be kept. The good thing is that neither one of those two statements are true of God because if they were true of God and God was not able to keep his promises, therefore he would not be the God he claims to be. Just like what we told our students this morning, if God was not able to keep his promise in the sense of loving us the way he promised, he also would not be able to be God. When we get to the book of Isaiah, which is the passage we just read from Isaiah chapter 9, there's many, many different truths in there. Just from verses 6 and 7, most scholars would say that there are 11 promises that have been fulfilled in the New Testament related to only those two verses. So we have a lot in our hands this morning. So let me give you a little bit of a background, okay? Because for us to understand what's going on in Isaiah chapter 9, we need to understand what Isaiah is actually doing. So Isaiah was a prophet, and he actually lived in Jerusalem. And part of his ministry to the church was to proclaim a message of judgment. God called him to proclaim a message of judgment on behalf of God against the leaders of the nation of Israel. Now, that's a humbling statement by itself to think that God is the one that keeps the leadership of the nation of Israel, and later he's going to keep the leadership of the church in his hands. Not only the nation of Israel, but also the nation of Judah, because they had rebelled against God, and they have disobeyed God's covenant to his people, and they announce, Isaiah announces at this moment, that God's going to actually destroy the nation, and he's going to use... Something that's very important in this context. He's going to use pagan nations to do so. He's going to bring the Assyrians and then the Babylonians actually take over and just wipe everything out. This was a punishment for disobedience, for their idolatry, and for the oppression of the leadership over the people that God had hindered them to be able to lead. Now, Isaiah doesn't always give a message of judgment. The book of Isaiah is not only about judgment, it's also a message about hope. Hey, wait a second, Michael. How is hope even possible here? You just said that God's going to bring two nations to wipe Israel and Judah clean, but there's also a message of hope in the middle? How do we handle this? Here's what Isaiah does. This is a message of hope. And this is not a message of hope that the leadership of the nation of Israel will turn their backs to their idols and the oppression over the people back to God. No. This is a message of hope because God would actually keep his promises. And Isaiah is saying to the people, I trust God. I know he will keep his promises to us. Therefore, hope is in him. Now, if we get to Isaiah, and most of us go to Isaiah chapter 6, we realize that Isaiah is actually confronted with the holiness of God. 
And in that confrontation, Isaiah is actually led by God to understand his sinfulness as well as the sinfulness of the nation of Israel. He's led to understand his own problems so that he can actually understand the problems of the nation and proclaim the message God has given him. As Isaiah begins to reflect on this and that experience, God actually commissions him to go and to proclaim God's message of judgment. Very similar to what God does to Jonah. Go proclaim a message of judgment and repentance. Turn your backs to the idols. And that message ultimately led the people to harden their hearts towards what God had for them. Now, this is not the outcome that a pastor or a preacher wants to have from the pulpit. But Isaiah is obedient. So he goes. And in this process, Isaiah chapter 7 happens. And in chapter 7, Isaiah confronts King Ahaz. And in that confrontation, he announced that the news from Assyria, that they will come and they will devastate the land. And then he gets to Isaiah chapter 8, and God gives, begins to give a little bit of a glimpse of a hope in here when he declares not only that they're going to send a new king to reign over the nation, and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us, who would eventually rule according to God's covenant, which was what the nation of Israel could not keep, and that will move them away from the darkness that they put themselves in because they rejected the promises of God. And this king would be, would be a promised son. Now, that's where Isaiah chapter 9 comes in. So open your Bibles in there with me. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. You see the hope discovered in sinful darkness. The gloom will be dis dispelled. Listen to what Isaiah says. Will be dispelled who were anxious, to so those who are anxious. In earlier times, God humiliated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But now he, God himself, brings honor to the way of the sea, the region beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness. Listen to what it says. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. A light that shines on those who live in the land of deep darkness. Now, to put this in context, go to verse 22 of chapter 8. Here's what it says. When one looks over the land, he sees distress and darkness and the people forced from the land. Now, this is not the type of vacation place you want to go into. We were just in Florida a few months ago. We were there for a week. This is not Florida. This, this, this is not this is not the vacation your wife's going to say to you in the beginning of the year, hon, I think we need to go to this place. I just, I just looked through all the travel agencies, and everybody's got a raving reviews about this place. This is actually the place that if it's on the way to your vacation, you take the time to drive 3,000 miles around so you don't get close to it. When one looks over the land, and here's God looking over the people, Here's what they see. The land is over distressed darkness, and the people are forced from the land. The land that God promised to give them is not, them, not theirs anymore. 
The relationship that God wanted to have with them is not theirs anymore because they have disobeyed God. They have followed pagan items. The leadership of the nation has oppressed the people of the nation. And now they're moved away from that relationship. And the situation is terrible. That is why Isaiah chapter 9 verse 1 is so important. Because Isaiah is going to show God's people now that hope comes in a form of a promise. Because words have power, and even though promises are hard to be kept, God is the one that's going to keep his promises here. And then, so when he says this, when gloom would be dispelled for those who are anxious, he's actually giving them hope. Why? Because in earlier times, God has, had humiliated the nation of Israel in the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But now he's going to bring honor to the way of the sea. Later on in the book of Matthew, if you want to jot that passage down, Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17, listen to what Matthew, the Jewish writer, tells his readers about this event. He says this, Now when Jesus heard that John had been in prison, Jesus went into, the, into Galilee. While in Galilee, he moved from Nazareth to make his home in Capernaum, by the sea, in the region of Zebulun, in Naphtali, so that, here's the purpose, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah would be fulfilled. And here's what he says, land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way by the sea, Beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sit under darkness have seen a great light. From that time, Jesus began to preach his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Words have power and promises are hard to be kept, but not under God's agenda. Verse 2. The people walking in darkness see a bright light. Light shines on those who live in the land of deep darkness. Isaiah is actually reminded the people here that it is impossible, listen, it is impossible for them, as it is for us, to leave our spiritual darkness behind apart from the light that God brings. It is impossible to leave our spiritual darkness behind apart from the hope that will come in the future. This is what Isaiah is saying. There's hope coming. You need to repent and believe, but there's hope coming. Why? Because God, according to Isaiah, he is the agent who brings the light into his people. Now, I was um, a little kid once, and um, little kid, some of you got the joke. I was a little kid once, and uh, I remember one time being home with my, my parents, and my parents had to go do something, so I was by myself, and I was probably, I don't know, 10 years old, and uh, it got dark really fast, and all of a sudden, the lights went out. And it's never a good place for you to be home by yourself as a little kid when the, dark, the, the lights go out, much more when your friends were talking about scary movies the day before, Especially one that if you look yourself in the mirror, stuff will come out and grab you. So you try to find all the different possible ways that you can hide from that situation because you don't want anything to happen to you. At least in your mind, something will happen. But that time is gone. And nothing happened. 
But the spiritual darkness that we find ourselves in will only come when God brings the light, not when the electrical company decides to put everything back in place. You can't turn the switch and say, I got the light of God, I'm good, I'm safe. It is through his promises, through his redemptive story in the Bible that you can find that hope. And so the promise here, listen to this, the promise here that Isaiah gives that this light will come is a promise of relief. It is, it is the pain that doesn't go away regardless of the medicine you take. And here's an even higher pain because it's a pain that separates you from the creator, the one who made you for a purpose and for a reason. And Isaiah is saying this solution the relief that you have comes from him and him only. Look at what he does here. Isaiah says he erases the gloom. It destroys the darkness. Boy, how I needed that as a little boy. I didn't want to be there by myself. It removes the affliction of God's people. The oppression is removed. The disobedience is away. The punishment is not there anymore because God's love now is accepted and taken in and now we have a relationship with him. All because, and don't miss this, all because the promise of the coming son is based on the character of the one who promised those things to you. Now if I went to your house as a brother in Christ, Forget the title as a pastor, but if I went to your house as a brother in Christ and I made you a hundred promises, most likely I will break some of them. That is not him. Not only we see that there's hope discovered in the sinful darkness that they are in, but we also know that there is joy that's discovered through God's deliverance. And this will lead us to understand why Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7 is so significant, not only for the Jewish people, for the church that God has paid through the blood of Jesus. Verse 3 to 5, follow with me in your Bibles. Here's what it says. You have enlarged the nation. You give them great joy. They rejoice in your presence as harvesters rejoice, as warriors celebrate when they divide the plunder. For their oppressive yoke and the club of the, that strikes their shoulders, the weapon of the oppressor, the, the weapon that the oppressor uses on them, you have shattered, and that is God, as the day of Midian's defeat. Indeed, every boot that marches and shakes on earth and every garment dragged through blood is used as fuel for fire. Now, let me give you some things here. According to Isaiah, hope will lead to joy, and joy will lead into victory. Joy for the enlargement of the nation. Did you see what it, what it says? You have enlarged the nation. God is going to do this process. Joy for the enlargement of the nation and victory over the enemies. Now, if you ever play any sports or if you play against any kid on your street growing up and all of a sudden you go home and you, you, you've been losing many soccer games or baseball games or basketball games or whatever games you play and all of a sudden you, you win one, you celebrate. This is what's going on here. They're saying, hey, there's, there's great joy here. 
Just like the harvesters celebrate when things come up, just like the warriors celebrate when they bring the plunder back here to celebrate the victory, there is joy through deliverance. And so they are coming from a place of gloom and darkness into a place where God's promising them to bring deliverance. Which if you're like me, you would say, that is amazing. But when? When is that coming? When is the pressure on my shoulders being moved and lifted? It is truly magnificent to think that God's own character would be sufficient, sufficient for his promise to come to fruition. God does not need you, he does not need me to accomplish his own promises. He only needs his own character. And that is mind-blowing. That is why Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, very briefly, is so significant. Because God is the one that gives his own people new life, and that he moves them from darkness into life, from defeat into victory. But not only that, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 5, sets the, 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 the trajectory of Isaiah's promise to the nation of Israel right now for the promised son. So let's look at this glorious announcement that Isaiah is going to make. Verse 6 through 7. For a child has been born to us, a son has been given to us. He shoulders responsibilities and he is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His dominion will be vast and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over Davidic kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the, of the Lord of heaven's armies will be accomplished. Now let me look at the first thing with you here in the beginning of verse 6, which is the Son will be a gift from God to us. Now, who could imagine that the hope that we need will come through the deliverance of a little baby boy. Innocent, helpless, helpless, helpless. But God doesn't work in our patterns. His divine goal is to accomplish things that we would not be able to take ownership over and be able to say, see what I've done? Did you notice here that Isaiah actually presents God's promise to them as a personal gift? Listen to what it says. Isaiah is going to say here, for a child has been born to us. His confidence in God's fulfillment is so magnificent here that he writes this whole declaration. Did you notice this? For those of us who like to look at verb tenses, did you see what Isaiah does here? He's not saying this child will be given to us. He's writing this as he's condemning the nation for leaving God behind, and he's saying God has already given us a son. I don't know, when I discipline my kids, I don't say to them, hey, you know what? You're going to be three days in your room without no food, but go ahead and just take the bucket of ice cream with you. The nation hasn't even come to punish them. And he's saying, God has already done these things for you. It's a done deal in God's 
kingdom. It's not like my promises that will fail. It's like God's promise. He can tell you that three years from now he will do something, but he can tell you yesterday he's already done. And that is the greatness of our God. It's beyond comprehension. And I think out of this comes out of a lesson that we can apply to ourselves, which is God is a promise keeper by nature, and we are not. His perfect character means that we can fully believe and not doubt every promise that he has proclaimed to us. But did you also also notice that according to Isaiah, this child will be a son? And say, Michael, we all know that. I grew up in church, that's the first lesson I've ever learned. But did you realize sometimes we take for granted how specific God is with his promises to us? It indicates here that a child will have the humanity side of things and this son will have the deity. So what Isaiah is actually proclaiming here is that this is not a normal child. It's a child with a human side and a divine sign together. It is a promise. It indicates the humanity as a gift in the form of a child as well as the deity of a child in the form of the son. And as we look through the Bible, there's many fulfillment of, fulfillment of different aspects of Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Some scholars believe that there are 11 passages in the New Testament that are fulfilling what Isaiah says in those two verses. Now, let me give you one of them. The fulfillment of this promise here, which is Jesus, the Savior, is born. Because Isaiah proclaims this child will be born. But Luke chapter 2, when he's writing, he says this in verses 11 and 12, but I'll read from verse 8 to give to give us some perspective here. Now there were shepherds nearby living out in the field, keeping guard over their flock at night. And you know the story, right? An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were absolutely terrified, just like I was in the dark in my own house. Okay? They were afraid. But the angel of the Lord said to them, do not be afraid. Just listen carefully. And here's what it says, for I proclaim to you good news that brings you great joy to all people. And then he goes on to say this, don't don't miss this. Today, your Savior is born. In the city of David, he is Christ the Lord. Now, by the time the New Testament has come around in comparison to Isaiah, a good amount of time has gone by, probably around 700 years. And, and I want you just to see what Luke's actually telling us here because the angel's announcement to the shepherds, they demonstrate some important things about Isaiah's prophecy. Number one, the, promise about, the promise about the son is called by the angels the good news. Did you notice this in verse 10 of Luke chapter 2? But the angel said to them, do not be afraid, listen carefully, for I proclaim to you the good news. Now the angels are expanding on that promise saying not only this child is born, but he is the good news. And then he says this, the second thing why this is so important, the good news brought them great joy. Do you remember in Isaiah chapter 9 verse 3 what it says that was going to happen? God was going to do all those things to bring them great, great, abundant joy. So now the shepherds can rejoice that not only the promises of God made through Isaiah are being fulfilled right in front of them. Number three, Luke chapter two, verse 10 here also, the good news of the son would bring people, listen to this, 
not only joy, but the joy would be to all people. To all people. If you're like me, you can be pre-selective sometimes. You say, ah, I'm going to buy a gift to somebody who deserves it. Not to everybody that I think needs to get one. God didn't use that mentality. God understood that all of us were undeserving. But he's promised to accomplish something. And if he doesn't do those things, listen to me. He is not God. And what he's telling us is, not only I'm willing to do everything that I've promised to you, I'm willing to even go beyond. Number four, this is not only for one people group, but for all people, which is a promise that God made all the way to, to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. You will be a blessing to all people. Now listen to this. The son here in Luke chapter 2 is described by the angels as a savior, which literally means the deliverer. The one who delivers his people. And lastly, his name is Christ the Lord, which means the Messiah God. There's another fulfillment here, and this one is one that we take for granted. All of us, probably most of us, would be able to come over here right now and say, hey, I can quote John 3.16, memory, no problem. I remember actually walking to my grandparents' house one day, and I've told you how impactful they were in my own life, even as unbelievers, if that is even possible. But I remember as a little boy going to my grandparents' house and walking to the place where my grandpa used to take a nap. There was a yellow couch in there, and against the wall, there's just there's nothing on the walls, but there was this little plaque with a verse that says John 3.16. So as an eight-year-old boy, that was the first verse that I've ever memorized without even knowing what that actually means. I walked by and looked at it and read it, and all of a sudden, I know it. But John 3.16 says this. Jesus is about 32 years here, 32 years old, and he's having a conversation with Nicodemus, one of the greatest stories in the Bible, very well known, and he says this. For this is the way God loved the world, right? He gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. And then he says this in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world, the world to condemn the world, but that the world to, through him might be saved. And then he says this. The one who believes in him is not condemned. The one who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. Now, let me give you a few things here. Listen to how remarkable this declaration is from, from about Jesus to Nicodemus, okay? In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, that we just looked at it, the text says that a son is going to be given to us. Look at the end of this in verse 16. He gave his only begotten son. Promise accomplished. Even though it had been in the mind of God already accomplished. John declares here the fulfillment of Isaiah's promise by confirming that God gave his only begotten son as a gift. Number two, the promised son here shows that God's personal investment in, in rescuing us. God's not giving us something that's not going to cost him anything. He's actually giving us his son that will cost him everything. 
Number three, the promised son's purpose is confirmed here. So don't miss this. He comes so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. His purpose here was to rescue you from your own darkness and your own gloom and your own sin. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like what Isaiah just wrote to the people who are about to be wiped out by two pagan nations? F.F. Bruce says this, the love of God is limitless. It embraces all mankind. No sacrifice was too great to bring its immeasurable intensity home to men and women. The best that God had to give, he gave his only begotten son, his well-beloved. Not only that, the son will actually exercise the the leadership of God's people. Not only God saves his people and decides, okay, I'm not, I'm going to save them, but I don't want to be involved in this process. No, God saves us, and he wants to be part of this, and he wants to lead us. And it says here, the government will be upon his shoulder. What is this government going to be like? Here's what I'm going to tell you. The government will be like his king. The government will be a reflection of the king, the one who rules. It will reflect the character of his heavenly father because he is the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. It will be a selfless enterprise where power and wisdom will, be, will not be used to proclaim human agenda but God's agenda. It will be a kingdom of peace where the king is accessible and visible, mighty and powerful and yet loving and gentle, caring and forgiving. His government will be like one never seen before. Third, here's what verse 6 says, and you're beginning to realize how heavy this verse really is. The son's greatness is now reflected in the names that Isaiah describes. McLean says that what the world needs the most, as the prophets saw clearly, is not primarily a better philosophy of government or a more perfect system of legislation, but a person whose character, wisdom, and power is needed to rule for God among man. And so he is called Wonderful Counselor. In Israel, in ancient Israel, a counselor was seen as a wise person, a wise king. They had a higher status in the community. Here, it means that the wisdom that this person will have will transcend all human wisdom, which means his wisdom is incomprehensible from a human perspective. He is a wonderful counselor. And that's why Isaiah chapter 11 will say this, the Lord's spirit will rest on him, a spirit that gives extraordinary wisdom a spirit that provides the ability to execute plans, a spirit that produces absolute loyalty to the Lord. That is not my spirit, that's a divine spirit. According to Isaiah, the son would have the ability to give, listen to this, to give advice and to actually uh, know all things because he is all powerful. He's able to advise to give advice to people, um, and he's able to actually do that because he's more qualified than all of us to do so. Contrary 
to many counselors that we know or people that we've talked to that have given us counselors or maybe even counseling that I've given, this person is a counsel that creates no confusion. He guides his people through life's decisions and unlikely any other counselor, he is actually has divine wisdom at his disposal. And he's got a knowledge that we don't have. He does not need to hear about our circumstances to know already what's going on. But he delights in doing so because he loves you. His counsel is free. It's available to you 24-7. His office is never closed. His agenda is, will never say busy to you. His aim is to conform you to the image of himself. And he's truly a wonderful and mighty counselor. This also means that God has the authority. The son has the authority and the power to accomplish all the wise plans that God has created for him. He's also called a mighty God. Look once again, verse 6, which means he's deity. He's worthy of worship. He has no weaknesses. And contrary to humanity, who seeks power to control situations and people, God uses his might. Listen to this. God uses his might to bless, to care, to encourage, to love, to direct, to guide, to comfort, and to protect you. And contrary to many human authorities who use their power and their position and their authority to abuse individuals spiritually, God is the one who wants to lead you spiritually to him. He is an everlasting father, which means the promised son here, the one that Isaiah is proclaiming will be an everlasting father. He's not, there's no conflict in the Trinity here. He will be a father in the sense that we will, will be forever loving you as an eternal father does. As a father, he will show his tender love to you and his care for you as his people. And then we come to the Prince of Peace. And I want to be really brief here because peace seems to be something that every single one at some point in our lives, we go after it. And we have the hardest time to find it. But he is the Prince of Peace. He's the promised son for becoming royal prince, which means turmoil does not belong to his kingship. Wouldn't that be nice? But it is. It is a promise that God has given in the past, and he has said it is accomplished. And then lastly, let me go to my last point here for you. The son's royalty will be displayed by the Davidic throne. Verse 7 says this, his dominion will be vast, and he will bring immeasurable prosperity. He will rule on David's throne and over the Davidic kingdom, establishing it and strengthening it, strengthening it by promoting justice and fairness from this time forward and forevermore. The first thing that we see here is that his dominion is vast, like it's abundant, it's great. There is no one that will be able to oppose his leadership. Number two, he will rule over the Davidic covenant or the Davidic throne. God has promised in 2 Samuel chapter 7, there is a king coming to us 
And now Isaiah is actually announcing he will be the one. This is a literal promise that requires a literal fulfillment. God has to keep his word, and he has to put this promised son in a position of rulership. Number three, he will rule by promoting justice and fairness. Wouldn't that be nice to have that right now? To be able to go through life with fairness and justice? And contrary to most governments, that increase their strength through wars and deceptions. He will rule through peace and will accomplish everything God has planned through justice and fairness. Fourth, he will rule from this time forward and forevermore. The son is gonna fulfill just what I said to you, Second uh, Samuel chapter seven, verses 16, where it says, your house and your kingdom will stand before me permanently. Your dynasty will be here forever. Ultimately, the son is going to rule. And that's why when we go to the New Testament, just like we've been going back and forth for a little bit, Luke writes again in chapter 1. Listen to what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse 32 and, and 33. Luke says this, He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord give him, he, him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will never end. Now notice that according to Luke here, the future aspect of the promise does not stop Christmas, at Christmas. Even after the birth of the son, which Luke's going to declarate and, and show to us, Luke does, does look forward to the fact that with the son will be a rulership in the future kingdom that God has for his nation. And then he ends this passage saying that the zeal of the Lord... The Lord of armies, heavens, will accomplish this. This should be an amazing and assuring declaration to you. And here's why. God is the one who is capable of accomplishing such a powerful promise. Promise that he has left for his people. His zeal for himself will guide this process. His determination to rescue his people will accomplish the unimaginable. And so the fulfillment of God's promise through the Son becomes a declaration that Christmas was made possible. And that's why we rejoice. Because his Son, according to the prophet Isaiah, is the hope that those who live in darkness need in order to find the light. He is the promised son. He's the wonderful counselor. He's the mighty God. He's the everlasting father. And he's the prince of peace. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Merry Christmas. Father, we thank you for your message and your word. Father, we realize that we live prior to Christ in a dark place. And we needed forgiveness, and so we rejoice with the promises that we have from you, that you have made that possible through Jesus Christ, the promised Son. Father, help us to hold on to your promises. Help us to understand that you are a God who loves us and cares for us. You are a God who delights in your truth and in your Son. 
And Father, I pray that you give us a sense of understanding that apart from you, darkness would never be able to leave our own spiritual life. Help us to understand who you are. Teach us, O oh Lord, and help us to be obedient. We love you, and we thank you for loving us first. In Jesus' name, amen.